How many of you are ready for the word? Amen. All right. It's not bad for a Saturday night crowd. The Sunday morning crowd, much more vocal than you guys. I'm just going to say. It's much easier to preach for me on Sundays. So I just want to challenge you in that regard. Just talk back to me. Say a few amens, hallelujahs. You're not going to throw me off. In fact, I'm just going to feed off of it. The sermon's going to be better. And I tend, to, I tend to preach shorter the more you talk back to me. So, all right. Hey, all right. I am feeling at home. This is, this is what I've been waiting for for 10 months. All right. Well, great. Um, we're closing a series today, this weekend, uh, that has been going on off and on for about 10 months. We've been looking very deeply at the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus' most complete, most important sermon that we find in chapters 5, 6, and 7 of, of Matthew. And so today will be, for Saturday night, it'll be our last time together in the Sermon on the Mount uh, for this series. I'm sure it's not going to be our last time ever, but um, we're, we're going to be looking at a, a lengthy passage in just a moment. You'll see, even if you look in your worship folder, we're covering verses 15 all the way through 29, so about 15 verses there. And when you, when you look at this passage, this section of the Sermon on the Mount, it encompasses three different passages. Uh, the first passage, which we're going to pay the most attention to tonight, Jesus talks about, uh, he gives an analogy of good trees and bad trees. Good trees produce good fruit, bad trees produce bad fruit. Um, and then the second passage in this section, he gives a glimpse of final judgment. And he talks about how there are going to be many who say, Lord, didn't I prophesy and cast out demons and perform uh, mighty works in your name? And Jesus is going to say, depart from me, for I never knew you. And then the final passage in this section, he gives this parable about the man who built his house upon the rock and the man who built his house on the sand. And when the storm comes, the guy who built his house on the sand, his house is completely wiped out. But the guy who built his house on the rock, his, his house remains secure. And he said, he said, those who take these words of mine, these teachings in the Sermon on the Mount, you, you, you put these words into practice, you're the man who builds his house on the rock. But those who hear these words and do not put them into practice, that's the man who's built his house on the sand. And that's where Jesus closes the sermon. He's like, what are you going to do with what I've just preached to you? And I'm going to say to you tonight, in these last 10 months that we've been working through the Beatitudes, the Sermon on the Mount, what are we going to do with this now? Have we just studied it and learned some cool things that have opened our minds, that, but, but completely our lives are totally unaffected by it? Or will we take this and with the guidance of the Holy Spirit and empowerment of the Holy Spirit, actually put it into practice? That's really the question. So we have these three different passages in this section we're looking at. And, um, you know, when I was putting together this series, kind of laying it out, I got to this section and I thought, well, you know, I could uh, just take it and, and preach each passage separately over three weeks. But in reality, this entire section, through these three passages, Jesus is making the same point from different angles. So I felt like maybe it would be best if we look at the whole section as a whole and deal with the entire thing and preach the point that's, that's a unified point rather than preaching the same sermon three times in three different ways. 
So that's what we're going to do. And the title of my message this weekend is Good Fruit and Bad Fruit. Let's look at the passage together. Jesus says, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will know them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorns or figs from thistles? In the same way, every good tree bears good fruit, but the bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a bad tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will know them by their fruits, he repeats. Verse 21, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many deeds of power in your name? Then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Go away from me, you evildoers. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and acts on them will be like a wise man who built his house on rock. The rain fell, the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house. But it did not fall because it had been founded on rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not act on them will be like a foolish man who built his house on sand. The rain fell, the floods came, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell, and great was its fall. Now when Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were astounded at his teaching, for he taught them as one having authority and not as their scribes. So Jesus is saying here, there are two kinds of trees. Good trees and bad trees. And the good trees produce good fruit. The bad trees produce bad fruit. And the good trees that produce good fruit, they're going to be spared. They're going to continue on. They're going to be saved. They're going to live on. But the bad trees that produce bad fruit are going to encounter judgment. That these are trees that will be cut down and thrown into the fire. Because after all, if you have a fruit tree that's not producing fruit, you might as well get some use out of it and turn it into firewood. And that's the image he's using. So, very familiar passage of Scripture, but there's a profound point that I don't think we think enough about and we haven't considered enough in the broader evangelical world. And that is that, first of all, Jesus is saying in each of these three passages that we just read that there is judgment looming. There is an impending judgment, not only in the sense of final judgment in the age to come, but even in this life, there is judgment, isn't there? We experience judgment in this life. So he talks about judgment, but just notice, and this is something that I can't emphasize enough, and it's consistent throughout the New Testament, that the basis of this judgment is the fruit that is produced in our lives. It's not a confession. It's not... It's not a mental ascent to beliefs. It's the fruit that is produced in our lives. So the question this passage is trying to welcome us into is 
what is the fruit of the kingdom of heaven that God is expecting and looking for in our lives? What is the fruit of salvation? What is the good fruit that proves that we are, we are good trees and not bad trees to be cut down and cast into the fire? Well, in order to answer this question, we need to get into our time machine that we use occasionally around here. We're going to go back 700 years. Because when Jesus talks about good trees and bad trees here, he's not coming up with this metaphor on his own, out of thin air. He's actually working with something that began with the prophet Isaiah. Way back in Isaiah 5, 700 years earlier, Isaiah is the one who originally gives us the analogy of the vineyard and the fruits and all of this type of thing. And Jesus is working with what Isaiah wrote way back then. So, so I want us to go all the way to Isaiah 5. And we're going to look at this prophetic poem that Isaiah composed back around 700 B.C. And actually, this would have been a song. Isaiah would have sung this. I'm not going to sing it for you tonight, but I, I will read it with you. It hurts my feelings. I'm... All right, so let's look at these first couple verses. I want to pause here and there and make a few remarks, but let's look how Isaiah begins this prophetic song. He says, let me sing for my beloved my love song concerning his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it and cleared it of stones and planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower. Remember all of this. He built a watchtower in the midst of it and hewed out a wine vat in it. He expected to yield grapes, good fruit, but it yielded wild grapes, bad, bitter fruit. So we got this, notice we have this fruit thing going on here. So Isaiah is saying there's a guy who has a garden. He, he, he wants to have a beautiful vineyard. And so he puts all kinds of work into this vineyard. He works the soil, clears it of all of the stones, cultivates it perfectly. He prepares this beautiful vine and he does everything that is needed in order for this vine to be fruitful and to bear good fruit. And yet, after all of this work and all of this labor and effort, lo and behold, he gets bad, bitter fruit. Now let's pick it up. Verse 3. And now, inhabitants of Jerusalem and people of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. This is God speaking now. Judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done in it? When I expected it to yield grapes, good fruits, why did it yield wild grapes, bad fruits? And now I will tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge and it shall be devoured. I will break down its wall and it shall be trampled down. I will make it a waste. It shall not be pruned or hoed. And it shall be overgrown with briars and thorns. I will also command the clouds that they rain no rain 
upon it. So impending doom, impending judgment is now going to come upon this vineyard because it has not produced good fruit, only bad fruit. Now let's look at verse 7. And here's the explanation. Isaiah says, For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the people of Judah are his pleasant planting. He expected justice. What did he expect? Say it. Justice. But instead he saw what? Bloodshed. Next part. He expected what? Righteousness. But instead he heard what? A cry. Now I want to show you something cool. Just go back to that verse for just a moment, Steve. I want to show you something really cool. At the end here, Isaiah is actually rapping here. You, um, you can't see it in the English, but in the original Hebrew, it would have sounded like this. He expected mishpat, and he got mishpak. He expected sedaka, and instead he heard sahaka. So there's kind of a rhyming thing here that he's doing, and it just it doesn't make sense in the English, but you at least get the essence of what's being said. And what's being said is this. What Isaiah's trying to paint for us is this, that, that God is like this gardener. And God looked upon the earth, and he saw that the earth was a wasteland. It was a desert, a wilderness. And so God selects Israel to be a vineyard for him. Not just for him, but for the sake of the whole earth. His desire was that he would take his vineyard, Israel, and work with Israel and produce Israel to be a flourishing, fruitful vineyard that would not just bear fruit, but would eventually expand and cover the earth so that the whole earth would become flourishing like Israel. That was God's dream. And God put so much work and labor. He did everything that was necessary. He gave Israel the, the law. He gave Israel the prophets. And he worked with Israel so that it would become a fruitful vine, flourishing with the fruits of righteousness and injustice. But instead of righteousness, he got murder and bloodshed and violence. And instead of justice, he says, I, I hear nothing but a cry of oppression. So get this. If you don't get this, you're going to be lost for the rest of the sermon. The fruit that God is looking for, that, that decides whether we are a good tree or a bad tree, is the fruit of righteousness and justice. Everybody say righteousness and justice. Now, we've talked about this in previous sermons. What is righteousness and justice? Remember, righteousness, sedaka, has to do with being properly related to God. Coming under the authority and the agenda of heaven, aligning our lives out of worship with what God desires. Vertically, proper relationship with God. That's righteousness. Justice, mishpat, proper relationship with one another and with human society properly treating one another, treating each person with dignity and respect as someone made in God's image. That's what the Bible calls justice. Jesus says, this is what all the law and the prophets hang upon. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbors yourself. Or righteousness and justice. This is the good fruit that God wants to produce in our lives. And this was the good fruit God wanted to see 
produced in Israel. And yet God instead, through the prophet Isaiah, is saying, that's not what I'm getting. I'm not getting this from you. I'm getting murder, bloodshed, violence. I mean, I, we, we just read a piece of it. I, I, I'm not going to read the whole poem. But he, he talks about things like economic oppression. He talks about things like drunkenness, debauchery, distorting truth, um, taking bribes, perverting justice, all of that sort of thing. He's saying, this is what I'm getting from my people, from my vineyard. And as a result, at the end of the poem, he announces, judgment is coming. And he tells the citizens of Jerusalem, he says, there's coming a time when nomads are going to wander around and they're going to look upon the ruins of your once great estate because they're going to destroy Jerusalem. It's coming. Now Isaiah writes this poem around the year 700 BC. 120 years later, the year 587 BC, what happens? The Babylonians come in, break down the walls of Jerusalem, utterly destroy Solomon's temple, burn the city to the ground. All of the survivors, which were mainly the wealthy, powerful elite of Jerusalem, they, they deported them and held them in exile in Babylon. And, 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 and wild sheep would graze among the ruins. And nomads, wandering nomads, would, would look upon the carnage that the Babylonians left behind. Now let's get into our time machine one more time. Let's zip into the future 700 years after Isaiah. And it's Jesus' final week in Jerusalem. And I want to show you what he does in his final week in Jerusalem. We're going to look at this in Matthew 21, where once again, Jesus takes Isaiah's poem about the good, the good tree, the bad tree, the, the vineyard that God had planted. And you're going to see that Jesus takes it and he reworks it into his own parable. And he's going to say something very explicit and very provocative about fruit. So let's look at this. Matthew 21. Watch this. We're going somewhere. This is really, this is really good stuff. Verse 33. Now he's in the temple courts right in the middle of everything. Listen, within 48 hours they're going to kill him. And I want you to hear how provocative uh, Jesus was. How bold he is. Here another parable he, he tells within earshot of all of these powerful temple leaders. Here another parable. There was a master of a house who planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a wine press in it and built a tower. Does this sound familiar? It's directly out of Isaiah 5. And he dug a wine press in it and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. When the season for fruit drew near, and what are the fruits? Righteousness and justice. When the season for fruit drew near, he sent his servants to the tenants to get his fruit. These servants, these are going to be the prophets. And the tenants took his servants and beat one, killed another, and stoned another. Again, he sent other servants, more than the first, so more prophets now. And they did the same to them. Finally, he sent his son to them, saying, they will respect my son. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, this is the heir, 
Come, let us kill him and have his inheritance. And they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. Jesus knows that within 48 hours, they're going to take him out of the city of Jerusalem and crucify him. Verse 40, when therefore the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? And they, meaning the temple leaders that Jesus is talking to, who have just heard him share this, they say he will put those wretches to a miserable death and let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the fruits in their seasons. Jesus said to them, have you never read in the scriptures the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone? This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. And here's how he finishes. Therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. He's telling them, you see this temple here, this wonder of the world? It's coming down. You all grew up hearing stories of what happened to your ancestors 600 years earlier when the Babylonians destroyed the temple, uh, burned Jerusalem to the ground, deported your ancestors because they wouldn't listen to the warnings of Isaiah and Jeremiah who were calling you for the fruits of righteousness and justice and you were, you were not offering proper worship and you were living in injustice toward your neighbors and, and Isaiah and Jeremiah warned judgment is coming, judgment is coming, it's, they're going to come and destroy you and they wouldn't listen and that's exactly what happened. Jesus is saying, frankly, it's happening again. It's going to happen to you because you're not producing the fruits of righteousness and justice. And look again at what he says in verse 42. He says, the stone that the builders rejected. He's talking about himself. He's saying, your chief leaders here have rejected me. And within 48 hours, they're going to crucify me. But this stone that the builders are going to reject, God's going to make it the cornerstone of a new temple. It's going to be a different kind of temple, not made by human hands. But this temple is going to be built upon me. My life, my teachings, my example, and my death and resurrection. And it's through this that God's going to usher in the kingdom of God that will finally at last bring forth the fruits of righteousness and justice in the earth. And now, Matthew 7 and the Sermon on the Mount begins to make a little more sense. Now look a little more closely here at verses 15 and 16. Beware of false prophets. You know, false prophets were a problem then, but they're also a problem now. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. But how are we going to know who these false prophets are? Because everybody talks about false prophets. These people are false prophets simply because they don't believe everything that I believe. They don't have every single uh, secondary doctrine that, that I believe. So everybody calls one another false prophets. But how do we actually know what a false prophet is? How can we tell a true prophet from a false prophet? Jesus tells us, you will know them by their fruits. And what are the fruits God is looking for? Righteousness and justice. Are grapes gathered from thorns or figs from thistles? In the same way, every good tree bears good fruit, but the bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a bad tree bear good fruit. 
Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, you will know them by their fruits. He repeats himself just to make sure we're getting the point. If I just sit around and say, oh, Jesus is my Lord. He's my Savior. I've said a sinner's prayer. I've been baptized. I go to church. I lift my hands. I sing with a lot of energy in my church service. But if my life is not producing the fruits of righteousness and justice, if I am habitually mistreating the people around me, there's always impending judgment and the cutting down of that tree and the casting of it into the fire. And this is what he goes on to say in verse 21. He says it explicitly. Look at verse 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father in heaven. In other words, it's not just praying the Lord's Prayer. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. We actually pray that, but we're also called to live it out. And he says, on that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many deeds of power in your name? Then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Go away from me, you evildoers. So listen to what I'm going to say. The way that we judge whether or not a ministry is of God is never on the basis of claims for the supernatural and miracles. Wow, this church over here, this ministry over here, this, this revival over here, these, these services, man, there's healings and there's miracles happening. God is on the move. Well, even if those miracles, whether they're legitimate or not, it's completely irrelevant. Notice Jesus doesn't dispute their claims. They're like, Jesus, we prophesied in your name. We did deeds of power. We drove out demons in your name. And Jesus doesn't say, no, you didn't. He's just like, yeah, my name can do some pretty wild things, can it? Nevertheless, I don't know you. Go away. So claims for the supernatural are not a legitimate way to judge whether or not a ministry is of God. Now, things like miracles, healings, these are things that tend to swirl around the kingdom of God. Imagine the kingdom of God, God's movement upon the earth. Imagine that it's like a tornado. Get, get an image of like a big F5 tornado in your mind. Huge tornado. And, and there's just no wall it can't break down. It's just breaking down barriers all over the place. Nothing can stand in its way. The kingdom of God is like a huge F5 tornado. If you've ever seen a tornado on YouTube or on the Weather Channel because we don't get many tornadoes around here, do we? But you always see swirling around the tornado, there's debris, there's shrapnel. And you see, if God's kingdom is like a tornado moving across the earth, miracles and healings and deliverances, these are the shrapnel and the debris that swirl around the kingdom of God. But they're not the essence of the storm. They're not the center of the storm. In other words, the kingdom of God is not about miracles and healings and the driving out of demons. What the kingdom of God is about is righteousness and justice. So we pray for healings. We pray for miracles. We believe and we expect for healings. And sometimes we get them. Hallelujah. But the kingdom of God is about righteousness and justice. 
with miracles and healing swirling around, but never at the essence of it. I'll say it this way. You are not going to be judged either presently or in the age to come. You're not going to be judged on the basis of your ability to heal the sick. In Matthew 25, when Jesus gives his parable of the sheep and the goats, he doesn't say, I was sick and you healed me. He says, I was sick and you visited me. I was thirsty and you gave me a drink. I was hungry and you fed me. I was naked and left out in the cold and you welcomed me. I was sick and in prison and you came to me. This is the fruit that we want to see produced in our life. Not, I was sick and you sent me a prayer cloth in the mail. Let me share in closing, let me share a story about my granddaddy. I grew up in a small community uh, just outside of New Orleans called Luling, Luling, Louisiana. It's a town of about 10,000 people or so, but there were other towns. They were all kind of clustered together. And there was a guy in our town. His name was John. And uh, John was a Vietnam veteran. And he came back from Vietnam with extreme PTSD. And I don't know if this was the cause or if it was just if it just exacerbated something that was already there, but, but he came back from that experience with major, major mental health issues that crippled him to the point where he just, he could not function like a typical person in society. He couldn't hold down a job. And uh, John was one of those guys in our, our town. A lot of people knew who he was because you, you would see John all the time riding his bicycle. He would ride his bicycle down the road through the neighborhoods looking for aluminum cans that he could exchange for cash. And he lived in an old uh, trailer just off of Highway 90 there in Luling. And my granddaddy, Joe Broach, my granddaddy was, um, he, he owned a used car lot there in our town. Just nothing extravagant, just, just a, he owned it for many years. And I actually worked for him, it was one of my first jobs. I worked for a couple years uh, washing and detailing cars. It wasn't good for me because my, my granddaddy let me get away with everything. And <laughs> I didn't really earn my keep. But, but my granddaddy had a really big heart and he had a habit of taking in people like John. He would take in people who were outcasts, people who were just on the fringe of society, uh, people who had fallen on hard times, whether their own doing or just because they had been dealt a bad hand. And John was one of many people that my granddaddy took under his wing. And, and he would let John come to the car lot. Sometimes he would go pick him up. Sometimes John would just show up with his bike. And um, my granddaddy would give him some odd jobs that, and just give him some cash uh, to give him some spending money. He would hire him uh, to rake some leaves at his house and just things like that. He just really looked after John, made sure he had everything he needed. And uh, when my granddaddy was, was dying in the middle of, 1999, he, he died of cancer. He was sick for about a couple months. It, it happened very quickly. But as he was in the hospital, and he was kind of realizing that his health was not good and he was getting close to the end, he told my grandmother and a couple members of our family, he told her, there's, I want you to go into our garage and there's a brand new bicycle that I bought for John. 
and I want, to, I want you to make sure he gets it. And, uh, and then with, within just two or three weeks, my granddaddy passed away. And I don't know how John made it to the wake, but he, he came to the wake and paid his respects. And that's just one of like numerous stories. I, after he died, um, there was somebody who came to the funeral and told our family that a couple years earlier, they reached out to my granddaddy because they knew of a single mother her husband had just abandoned the family and left. And the single mother was now having to enter back into the workforce. But she had a vehicle that was broken down beyond repair. And so this kind of intermediary reached out to my granddaddy to see if he could help her find some type of appropriate vehicle that would work for her. And my granddaddy ended up giving her a vehicle right off the car lot, and nobody knew about it. His wife didn't know about it. And we, we, we would never have known about it if this person hadn't come to the funeral and told our family. And that was one of many stories about my granddaddy's generosity and kindness to people that were hurting. And we only found out about it after the fact because somebody came to let us know how he had touched their lives. And that's what my granddaddy was like. He found outcasts and he befriended them. He helped them. He cared for them. He gave them a dignity and respect that they couldn't find in other places. And the only explanation for that is because he was connected to Jesus. He was connected to the vine. And it was because of his enduring connection to the vine that he was able to produce the fruits of righteousness and justice. To my knowledge, my granddaddy never healed anybody. He never performed any miracles. He never drove out any demons. As wonderful as those acts can be, I'm, I'm not minimizing that. But that just wasn't my granddaddy's life. That wasn't his story. But he did learn how to treat people with dignity and respect, including those people who didn't tend to get respect from everyone else. And that's what the Bible calls justice. A good tree produces good fruit. So I just want to encourage you, village, we can't heal everybody, but we can love everybody. We can't fix everybody, but we can show everybody dignity and respect. And we can't always get the miracle we want, but our lives can produce the good fruit of the kingdom of heaven. And if we'll focus on what we can do, rather than worry about what we can't. We're going to bear just fine in the judgment.